It's not true You say I've been in prison You say I've got a wife You say I've had help doing everything throughout my life It's not true, it's not true Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, we're going to talk a little bit today about self-deception. I don't think I'm open to that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's not necessarily self-deceived, though. Oh, no, that's more... Uh, that's know. not. That could be an honest feeling. <laughs> okay, actually, not illustrative of the point. Yeah. No, you know, it's... Uh, well, if you said, I've never been self-deceived... And that might be, be true self It could be a lie, too. It could just it could be, be a lie. Yeah. But if you believed it, it could be true self-deception. So how would we differenti- differentiate between lying to oneself and self-deception? I think this is a spinoff of your conversation with Dr. Hauerbos. Yeah, he was saying that he was writing these letters to his godson. This book, by the way, is fantastic. I mean, I, I, I couldn't recommend it enough, if, especially if you hadn't read a lot of Hauerbos. If you wanted to get an overview of his thinking, because... He wrote these letters to his godson on the anniversary of his godson's baptism over 16 years. Is that Fitch? Is Fitch his godson? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stanley doesn't, uh, Neo Anabaptist isn't Stanley. Stanley takes it straight up, not Neo. Now, like, so you, so you think about the past 16 years, you see like the unfolding of some of his thinking in different mm-hmm. parts of his life. Yeah. So he talks about in this one, in each letter is about a virtue. The first one is all about kindness. So, and one about truthfulness, he talks about lying, and he talks about like the how basically self deception is different than lying, because if you're lying to yourself, you know you're lying to yourself, because you have to be. It's like Augustine says, the liar has to be familiar with the truth to know it, which is why we've said before, the liar is more is morally superior to the bullshitter, because the bullshitter to say what they say doesn't have. And there's no prerequisite to know the truth because what it doesn't matter if what you say winds up being true. You're just bullshitting. But the liar has to know the, the reality in order to prevaricate. And so if you're in that stage, you actually are still conscious that you're lying. But if you're self-deceived, you, it's really hard to figure out because usually somebody has something has to jar you out of it because the, it, the lie, it's like the it's like the Jerry Seinfeld, the Seinfeld episode where he's like, George, teach me to lie like you. Jerry, that's like saying to Pavarotti, teach me to sing like you. And they says, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. But I take George as like, if we, you know, whatever, at face, I guess like George is, is saying that if you, if you can get to the stage of self-deception where you've right. bought your own lie, you're more effective. Do you, uh, are you familiar with Maxwell's demon? It's a, it was a thought experiment to try to disprove the second law of thermodynamics. And I think a guy named Morgan took it and changed it. There's, anyway, there's this demon that takes certain, you know, kind of moves slow moving uh, electrons into one place. It was, the whole idea was if could you come up with a way to defeat the second law of thermodynamics? But this idea of the Twinkie. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, just make the Twinkie like a, a sentient being. And it, that thing's never going to die, it's yeah. immortal. Yeah. But then I think this guy named Morgan took it as a principle about self-deception and the whole idea. And, and actually, this, this article I read was about um, how people who believe in young earth convince themselves, regardless of the evidence, 
you know, the, the evidence doesn't, you know, the facts don't seem to, bo- to uh, challenge their opinions. And it's this idea that you self-select. In other words, so you any information that reinforces what you think, you, you allow that in your room. And anything that doesn't, you, you put into the room of denial. So that's why, you know, one level with, the, with Trump supporters, it doesn't matter how many facts. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how obvious it is that there has been some law broken on some levels. It, it doesn't matter because that's the whole fake news thing. And, and now we have fake memos <laughs> that you see. <laughs> so there's a sense where, and we've talked about this before, I'm nat- I, I naturally have more favorable opinions or more favorable response to things that reinforce my oh, confirmation bias. Is, confirmation bias. And, how we live our lives. But this goes even the next step deeper that sometimes what we do is we even, as I think it's Maxwell's or Morgan's demon, is that it's even worse than that. This is the whole idea of self, you know, self delusion is that you, you immediately eliminate, you know, you eliminate anything that you, that is counter. Yeah. And education. I mean, I've seen studies that, so how education just makes confirmation bias worse because you just get better at sourcing. Right. So you just weed out like, so, you know, you weed out. And the trouble part with the confirmation bias in the, in a realm, we were just fine, you know, just what we've learned over the weekend, the uh, firm that manipulated the Facebook by looking at the 50, you know, the, you know, the 50 million Facebook people, they looked at their preferences and it was a firm that was also a, a media firm that was hired by the Trump administration. Uh, and Facebook, you know, finally has admitted that they allowed this company to share, they shared personal data so that they knew exactly what, what, what kind of things these people would, would, uh, would, uh, respond to. I would love to see my file. <laughs> Cambridge Analytica, right? That was the company. Yeah, Cambridge, company. Cambridge Analytica. And they had a whistleblower it came out. Yeah. Dunning the Kruger effect too. Yeah, very good. Yeah. There, so yeah, I mean, there's some deep sociological, social psychology knowledge right there. Yeah, and I thank I mean, you, Jeffrey. And part of the thing is this is not exclusive to. I mean, we'd say Trump. Everybody does this. I mean, like yeah, I mean, this is this, everybody. Th- just kind of instinctively, I think we are again the confirmation bias stuff. The whole like Jonathan Haidt kind of idea that morality binds and it blinds. I mean, it's sort of you, in order to sort of have a cohesive human community, you have to sort of accept certain practices and things like that and, and and rule out others. And so you wind up by necessity, these things kind of characterize all of our lives. Right. You know, I mean, for instance, you know, we, um, the guy who philosophizes this, which is a great podcast. Fantastic podcast. Podcast. So good. (laughs) He says, you know, we're humans will believe anything. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, as you know, there's a whole millions of people buy into the idea that there's a guy in a red outfit, red costume, and can get through the chimney to give you presents. And not, not only do we believe this lie, but adults spend a lot of energy trying to convince their children that this lie is true. And um, yeah, and and uh, we believe. Matter of fact, uh, how many of you remember as a kid when you knew it wasn't true, but you still pretended to yourself? That it was true, you know, that, that because you didn't want it, you wanted it to be true. You didn't want it to stop being. And I think, you know, there's probably some evolutionary. I mean, I, I you know, I've read studies in this. You know, it, there was uh, a lot of evolutionary value for there to be coherency in the tribe. You know, it was really important for the forty to sixty people that made up a tribal group 
to be to hang in there. And um, you know, and I think that's that's part of this is you know, it's it is a <laughs> flat earthism. Jeffrey Carter from California is telling us flat earth earthism is a great example of yeah these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that I mean people some people believe professional wrestling is real. <laughs> it's not. Well, some of it, at least not. It's not. At WWE, it's not. WWF, maybe it was in the golden era. <laughs> By the way, great movie, The Wrestler. A uh, fantastic. The, I I have a friend who was in that film. The pain, the pain is real. I have a friend who was in that film. You you know, she, she was the woman that he had the conjugal encounter with in the bathroom. Wow. Yeah. That's. I'm just saying she was. She's an actress. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. So that that means a big part big role uh not as big as mercy to Mace role in the film, but, yeah. but you know it's a it's, yeah, it's a role very, yeah very good so uh you know it's By the way, i got nothing for that for i that. have nothing back i don't have there any i don't know anybody i like that 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 scene where he's like working in the grocery store and cuts his finger off in the, in the deli thing. oh god that's <laughs> awful that's so awful <laughs> that's right yeah that's well yeah. so it's interesting nietzsche has this great essay it's written in 1878, I think, called um, On Truth and Lie in an Extra Moral Sense. So this is, it's not long. I mean, I, I'll, maybe I'll link to it in the show notes. But um, Oh, Jeffrey Carter says from California, the first time he realized he was willfully believing wrong things, it was revelatory. I think I was around 10 or 11. Wow, you were a late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, what was it, Jeffrey? Can you yeah, tell exactly. us? Tell can us you tell us? From... If you can't, it's, you know, yeah. we'd keep, we'll keep it in confidence. Well, I guess not. Yeah, yeah we will. <laughs> we're right. Facebook Live. So, but, uh, so Nietzsche says, this is pretty interesting. He says, we still do not know where the urge for truth comes from. For as yet, we have heard only of the obligation imposed by society that it should exist. To be truthful means using the customary metaphors in moral terms the obligation to lie to a fixed convention, to lie herd-like in a style obligatory for all. Now, man, of course, forgets this is the way things stand for him. Thus, he lies in the manner included unconsciously and in accordance with habits, which are centuries old, and precisely by means of this unconsciousness and forgetfulness, he arrives at the sense of truth. Hmm. So basically, he's saying that, like, that, that, the basically truth is just sort of what we all agree. It's this kind of impressionistic sense. It's sort of, we, we make metaphors and metaphors become concepts, all this stuff. And we, and it makes this interesting point. We don't really like the truth in itself and we don't really hate the lie in itself. What we like is the benefits of the truth. And what we fear is the effect of the lie. Like we're deceived, mm-hmm. but that's like, but, but usually that's because then we've had feel like, or dumb, or someone got when something, oh, something, someone got something over on us, and there was some del- deleterious effect or something. But he thinks that like no one really cares about the truth or the lie. It's the pragmatic effects of well, if I know a lot about the truth, it means it, it, that means I've mastered the game. It's like a poker or something that people are just good at calculating odds and reading right. people's faces. So the truth is an agreed upon consensus that we all agree. So the so what we love about the truth is we've come to play the game better in some respect. Right. Right. Isn't that isn't that and that's being played out in our political theater, even as we speak. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting because, like, you think about liberals, right? Have we seen any evidence, right? Yet, no, the Mueller thing has not come out yet, but we haven't seen evidence of collusion, right? Like, which is interesting. And when Republicans say that, 
There's truth to that. There is a truth. The, the way the, the way well, there's a truth they haven't seen it. Right. Well, right, because they haven't interviewed it. Right. They haven't interviewed it. But I mean, I just think it's interesting how people immediately kind of just go into their sidelines. Okay. It was here we get Jeffrey Carr's going to reveal it. It was early childhood memories. I thought I remember events. Oh. But I was projecting my patents, apparent stories, into my vague memories. Yeah, I know. Which is a you know what's um, which is one of those. You know, it's one of those things that we all have had happen. And what's really interesting about it is that um, whether you're dealing with a legal case, you know, when they're, when you're under under oath, what, you know, uh, I want the truth, you can't handle the truth. Well, part of the thing about it, uh, you know, anytime I've done, you know, counseling people over the years, and I've, if I've seen someone over a long enough period, I'll have them repeat the founding story or the critical thing that got them in there. And it's amazing how the story is different every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. There was this episode of the show, The Blacklist on NBC, and this is James Spader's in it, and he's this like most wanted FBI kind of super criminal. And he basically works. He's now working for the right. Trump administration. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he basically works with this FBI task force to get other blacklisters, all these people that are on the, the most wanted list. But there's this guy who is this the blacklister of the weekend. What he does is he creates alibis for people. So, and he talks about, there's this, he's this great riff about memory and how memory works. So what he does is he does these facial molds and stuff. And like, he finds like a double for the person and will, and then just gets the person to do the same routine, same routine. So this guy wants to kill his wife, right? So the same routine, same routine. Then he has this double jog the routine on the morning. He's in DC, the doubles in New York, but all these people, like he's made up a pattern. It's like, it's just people. Memory is what, Right. You want people to see and what you want people. So like, you know, it just kind of you create these, you know, patterns in people's minds. It's just a fascinating riff on like what the nature of memory is. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart. Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah. So part of the whole, yeah, with all that in mind, you know, self deception is inevitable, and 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 it may. And it, you know, one of the things is that, and one of the articles I read about this was 
And it's not, it's not, it's something that our subconscious is doing all the time. It's not, you know, I mean, the difference between a, a lie, lying to yourself is you know you're doing it. Right, right. But this is, this is a complicated, you know, in some levels, it's probably a, a great defense mechanism for ego, ego protection. In other words, part of how I preserve myself is to cling to my founding myths, to um, whether they be about the world, whether they be about God, or whether they be about myself. And um, But, you know, the interesting thing about it is that's not actually freedom. There's a certain kind of – there's a bondage in that. And, um, and, you know, part of the reason whether or not relationships break down um, – Things that go wrong in churches, things that go wrong in a country, things that go wrong in our own lives. You know, if we never can figure out what we're missing or what, if we can never figure out maybe what is a self-defeating behavior or if we want to be better, if we want to be better people, then there has to be some degree where we begin to deconstruct that, at least get a little more glimpse of what we really are. It's interesting. I'm thinking of Kahneman and the, the thinking fast and slow comes. Like after all this research, I don't think I'm any more careful. <laughs> like, I don't think I'm any better of a thinker. I'm not any like you know like it's so. I, yeah, that that's amazing to me. The Kahneman. I mean, the guys. Well, in, you know, I think in terms of what is the truth that sets us free. Let me say one thing though about in response to like the necessity of it. I think like there's a kind of self deception that's rooted in finitude. And there's a kind which maybe like reaches over into fallenness because like we have to, you know it's like Kahneman right. talks about like you know when you say what's nine times eight you say seventy two that's like the fast part of your brain right if I think if I say what's seven hundred eighty two times six hundred forty six then you're like okay wait I have to think about how I do mathematics right. but like just basically the number of situations you are in in a daily basis if you had to like use your slow part of the brain. To make a left turn signal right, no. at a green light, you couldn't. You just couldn't function, especially in a complex world. Like you, so some of this is just like the deceptions are shorthand exercises mm-hmm. of the brain, which are necessary because we're finite and the world's complicated. And a lot of times, the snap judge, the snap frameworks get it wrong. Like, I mean, it's just interesting, like, this study they did, you know, where Michael Lewis writes about it in The Undoing Project, but I think Conor writes about it in Think Fast and Slow, too, where they would get academics in, and they would spin a wheel of fortune, which had, you know, like, like had a bunch of numbers, and ask them a number of countries in Africa, and the higher they spun, the more countries they'd say, the lower they'd spin, the lower they're, like, <laughs> that's just, like, why is that? I mean, the associative powers of, like, the snap judgment of the brain, like, you just, like... It, it's it's remarkable. Like well, you're just part, making yeah, judgments yeah. all the time that are just wrong. Well, but yes, well, and I guess, but you know, if you make enough of them, they end up being right at times. It's part of how why we're on the top of the food chain. Well, right, uh, yeah, no, they'll yeah. be right a lot, like yeah. like because they're based on experiences, and and, and uh, they'll, again, this is the Nietzsche thing. Truth is like what how we function in the world together, and there's a reason why, like conventional wisdom, right? Like like when when Nietzsche says or when Hume says that. Well, there's no such thing as like uh, laws of nature, you know, scientific laws. There's just like convention. But then it's like, why believe it? Because only an idiot ignores conventional wisdom. You know, like there's an, there is a sense in which you know you kind of like they they they. There's a reason these these illusions function. Like right. they, they you know like it's like Eliot says every uh, theory is true from some place, or else it wouldn't have been thought up. Right. Well, and for instance, the stranger is dangerous. Uh, that's served the species, 
probably more than it hurt it. Especially in The Walking Dead. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. Everybody's stranger they meet. It's almost always bad. Nine out of ten times. A lot of times, some of them are even cannibals. Man. It's, it's tough. Yeah. No, well, and that actually probably was the case 150,000 years ago. Yeah. I mean, 50,000 years ago. So, trying, I mean, yeah. so there's a sense where, so, for instance, prejudice. Okay. That's well, why that story in, in Genesis with Joseph is so weird. Where he's looking for his brothers and the stranger's there. I'm like, is it an angel or what? Because when did you just see one stranger in the ancient Near East? And the said, hey, have you seen my brothers? That way. <laughs> I'd, I'd be inclined to like look, go the other way. Right, right. Yeah. No, I, and I think so. There's a sense where, I mean, remember, I, this was maybe, it's been, oh my goodness, 20, 30 years ago when uh, Jesse Jackson admitted that when a young black man walks behind him, he gets nervous. So now again, there's all kinds. That's there's so much wrong with that, and there's and there you know. But what's illustrative of Jesse Jackson saying it is, it gets back to this idea of we make these automatic judgments, and it's part of the way that keeps us safe in the world. It seems to me part of the scandal of Christianity is that. To be safe of God frequently means that you're less safe in the world. I mean, I mean, in some levels, there's a lot of counterintuitiveness to the kingdom of God. That's, those two are not mutually exclusive. MAGA, dude. MAGA. <laughs> we can say Merry Christmas, and we're building a huge military. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Another waste of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and um, cutting our taxes, so that'll all work out well. Spending more taking in less. I'm not an economist, so I can't really tell you what's going to happen with that. I can tell you, I'm not an economist. I can tell you, it seems like it's a lot of wild, wacky stuff. <laughs> I'm not an economist, but I, I played one on TV. Bad things. Well, what... Uh... I would not want to play an economist on TV. Yeah. Like, although, I don't know, maybe like, Freakonomics is like one of the best podcasts. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know, what if you were an economist that Worked with the FBI to solve weird systemic crimes. I mean, that would be kind of cool. That sounds like a series that doesn't make it. Uh, if it begins in October and ends November, first week of November. <laughs> I always want Lindy and I are really into the show. Uh, what's it called? The designated survivor, where oh. Kiefer Sutherland is, is the is the president. He's the secretary of the Inter or housing and urban development. He's the picked survivor for the state, right. and the whole cabinet right. below the Congress right. plus everything. So, like, I'm always like, do you ever feel like for ten minutes in the show? You just wish you could make him into Jack Bauer. <laughs> like, like there's a 10 minute car, like a like, like, like a token where it's like when Super Mario got really fast or yeah. Kiefer gets to become Jack yeah. Bauer and to stop the terror attack himself. Yeah. I, I watched, I watched the first episode of that. I didn't watch it more. Uh, He's a great president. He's the president we wish we had. Uh, He's independent, like neither party. He's like, he just always does. He's just always trying to do the right thing. And yet he's not. He's, but yet he's also got a pragmatic edge. He's so, smart. So in other words, this is a fantasy. He's show. a lot like Donald Trump. It's, it's almost exactly like Donald Trump. Are there are there fairies and uh, yellow leprechauns in this show as well? Because it sounds like a total fantasy. But let me. But the interesting thing. No, and they're not even Jack Bowers. <laughs> well, you know what? I I know. I mean, I know the premise of the show. And so this year during the uh, State of the Union. I was terrified to think which one in the which one in the Trump <laughs> Betsy DeVos. Oh Betsy DeVos. No, we want her on the front line when the bomb goes. I, you know who knows? I mean, Rick Perry. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty. It's amazing when Rick Perry looks good. You know, you put all those cabinet together, and Rick Perry, 
you know, he, he didn't know what his he didn't know what his department initially was, but yeah, you know, yeah. It, it, I feel better when he puts the glasses on. Yeah, and I think so too. It makes uh, he, he looks he looks smarter. Yeah, no, I think so too. Gives him a little bit. of I gravitas. think he probably wears the glasses a lot. Department of yeah, Energy, gravitas. I've actually been in the Department of Energy. Department of Energy is a big deal, dude. Yeah, it's hard to get in. It's hard, probably even harder now than when I got in there. I had a friend who was an undersecretary there. And uh, but getting back to this idea of if self deception is part of it, you know, it's a it's a defense mechanism. It's you know, I think I like the idea. It's part of finitude. You know, I mean because. We can never be even in a privileged position about ourselves, right? Right. No, yeah. I mean, this is Nietzsche's, the brilliant point of that essay is, um, you know, is the sense that like everything is so, you know, when he talks about, it's very compelling when you, when you talk about like on the ground, how human nature works and why we, like what the truths are that these, these illusions and, and, and things like that myths that we forgot are, are those and they become endearing. But it is interesting, you know, Augustine, Calvin, uh, in their formative works, um, open with this idea of wanting to know themselves and wanting to know God, that self-knowledge and the knowledge of God are intimately twined together. So I think as Christians, we recognize or should recognize and be infinitely skeptical of our own opinions. I think that might be the greatest virtue. That's kind of what is – isn't that what humility is a bit? I mean, to be kind of realize, okay, this is who I am. These are my limitations. This is who I am. And when it comes to this idea of self-deception, we should be, I think we should be much more skeptical about ourselves than we frequently are. Ah, I, I completely agree. And but I'm even skeptical of my agreement. Well, I'm, I, wow. well, I'm always skeptical when you agree with me. <laughs> but I do think this idea where... The risk, the risk of the truth, the risk of the Christian idea of truth, because it begins with having to accept the truth about yourself. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember Randall Zachman when he delivered the Warfields at, at Princeton Seminary, and I mean, the guy has, I think, read everything Calvin's ever written in the original language. He's a brilliant guy, and he gave this lecture on Calvin and Kierkegaard knowledge of self. And he was talking about how this the like the rub is that like. Because he's talking about the knowledge of self, that, that, that you need the light to see yourself, like the God is light, right. sort of thing. And, and yet, and that's a big theme in Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, and yet you yeah. want to see, and yet you don't want to see what's there, right? Because you know, yeah. he's talked about how basically we all just live by like a comparison. So it's like, oh, I'm overweight, but I'm not the most overweight person in the room. And the next person looking at the other person, or like you know, or he'll say like, I'll say to a colleague, oh. Uh, I I was really impressed. I I saw your new book is out. What I'm really meaning is, oh, I could write popular stuff like that, and I'd churn out two books a year too. But I'm writing, really, you know, like he was saying all these things. <laughs> but he said, you know, the thing is, like, to know yourself, you need the God, but yet you don't have the courage to sort of see the light. Which is why, unless you think God is graciously disposed to you, you probably will never go into the light because you because you need to know that the light is also love. Or else you'll just like, it's too painful. You know, there, there's a thing in which it, it has to be, you know, this is where Calvin says like in First John, we say, wow, we were yeah, enemies, you know. Okay. Yeah. And Calvin's like, well, I mean, this is rhetorical flair because we couldn't really be enemies if, or else there'd be no incarnation. I mean, he must have been graciously disposed already or else there'd be a no election. There'd be no, so like this kind of sense that like, yeah, that there's safety uh, in the light there there's warmth the light of love i mean if unless somehow you know that i i think it'll and uh, you, you just the gravitational pull away from it 
Yeah, it's too hard. I, yeah, you know, I think I'm never, you know, just that whole, just what you were just saying, it reminded me of George Herbert's poem, Love Number Three, where this idea that love is God, God personifying love has a banquet and God invites us to the banquet. But, you know, the soul continues to draw back. And, and the dance of the poem continues to be the objections of the soul being met by God saying, Whatever your objections are, I'm the author here. I'm the one who's inviting you. You know, and ultimately it ends when finally the person says, Okay, well I'll come to your table, but I I need to be the the one to serve. And God says no. Yeah, right, right. When when, when say like it, yeah, it like it it's interesting when you think of worship service. Well, who is served? Well, really the participants are the one that are the ones right. who are served by yeah. God through the means of grace. Yeah. I think sometimes that's that's, you know, those of us who do this as a vocation, uh as a work, uh probably some point and and it probably doesn't happen till we're older, the day we actually really become Christians when we realize that the life we save may be our own. That this in some levels the the deeper magic of the whole call to ministry is that God is saving you through this. Absolutely, yeah. And so I think, you know, there's a sense where I love that idea that, you know, there's that we're brought into the life maybe like the image I have is, you know, you're you're brought into the light um gently. Uh you know, it's See, S. Lewis talks about this in Mirror Christianity, right? What's the first thing that happens when you turn light in the basement? All the creepy critters go under <laughs> this is scary, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's kind of uh um you know, I, I helped my my. It's third. like if you turn the light on at five a.m. What's the first thing you do? You close your eyes, like, right, it, right? Like it's sort of yeah. these you know light bulbs. That of course, are the worst thing in the world that they because they've taken all our freedom away. But these like light bulbs that you know the environmentally safe, they're nice for the morning because it doesn't come right on. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's uh, my third son is recuperating from a car accident, and uh, you know, helping him walk. Again, you know, you know, it, uh, and then also the image I had, because he's going to get better. He's going to be strong. And then there's a future day where he'll be doing this with me. Yeah. And be able to understand that. that um, the day where we'll be sitting in the bunker. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that there's this kind of, this is, this is who we are. This is how fragile we are. And, and yet embracing that. And and in the and 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 saying no to this denial of our fragility, our brokenness, and having the courage to 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 stumble into the world to say that you know we're all limping and and there's an opportunity for us to be healed. Maybe that's part of what Lent is. You know, you deny yourself a little bit so you can know yourself a little better. Yeah, it's great. There's this line at the end of this discussion. Frank Lake has of. Jacob, and he says, you know, talking about walking into the, into the rising sun, he says, but better to walk limping than to be excluded from the kingdom by embracing the uh, a false whole humanity. So yeah. It's like the, yeah. false, the, like the falseness of a quote-unquote kind of whole humanity. The billion-dollar industry of trying to create a false humanity that eventually will collapse. Yeah. Uh, I've said this before, but I remember... Um, Someone once told this ancient spiritual director, she was very old and very wise, and said she didn't trust a man who didn't limp. Yeah. So, um, grace and mercy, and a little more truth for all of us. Thanks, friends. Thank you.
If you search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find. You can have the love you need to live. But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty. I can always find someone to say they sympathize if I wear my heart out on my sleeve. But I don't want some pretty face to tell me pretty lies. All I want is someone to believe. Cause you're the one that I 